0: Welcome. Thank you to everyone joining us online and here at the Bakersfield Music Theater. I'm Nick Yang, the Digital Communications Coordinator from Zocalo Public Square, an Arizona State University media enterprise. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at zocalopublicsquare.org as a podcast and YouTube, so please subscribe for our latest programs. Tonight we present Can Rua Education Survive the 21st Century from our partners, the California Wellness Foundation. I'm pleased to introduce our moderator, KQED correspondent and co-host of the California Report, Saul Gonzalez. Over to you.
1: Everyone, thank you for joining us here tonight. It's always a pleasure to moderate a Zocalo event. It's one of my favorite institutions here in California. I'll take a seat and let our esteemed guests come through. Oh, am I in the wrong place? (laughs) So much for the rehearsal. I gotta get educated about where to sit first. So the event is called Can Rural Education Survive the 21st Century? I think our guests have a lot to say about the title and about uh, the subject, and I'm really excited to, uh, to introduce them. Uh, To my left is Julie Bush. She's the Assistant Director of Systems of Support for the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. She is the former superintendent of Maple School District, about 300 students, I believe, a rural single school district in the San Joaquin Valley of Kern County, and has previously worked with the Tehachapi Unified School District, Ventura County Office of Education, and the Greenfield Union School District. You're also a teacher instructor at Cal State, correct? Yes. Cal State Bakersfield. Next is Connie Stort, the Executive Director of Initiatives for Cal Poly Humboldt in beautiful Arcata, California in the far north. She is the former Executive Director of the California Center for Rural Policy and currently serves as its Chief Policy Advisor. She served on the Arcata City Council for eight years and as Mayor of Arcata for two years. She received the 2017 Rural County Representatives of California President's Award, that's a mouthful, for her work bringing broadband to rural California communities. Connie, thanks for joining us. (laughs) And finally, Tim Taylor is the Executive Director of the Small School Districts Association, which supports small school district governing boards and superintendents through legislative advocacy, collaboration, professional development, and other services uh tim previously served as butte county superintendent of schools and as assistant superintendent at the sacramento county office of education and as director for the elk grove unified school district thank you all for joining us thank you thank you it's going to be a great Brilliant. conversation about a very important issue tim i want to uh, dive right into it with you and i want to start with the title of this uh, of this event can rural education survive the 21st century is it a good question to ask and why
2: Yeah, I think it's a fascinating title because obviously we always say yes, but I think there's some major challenges going on. And I think that our panel today will look at solutions, talk about how great these schools are, but also uh, talk about some, some of the schools are facing some real, real challenges to stay open. Existentially? sized challenges to stay open in your opinion uh, it's it's a combination of it's getting more difficult to run a small frontier frontier is very very small schools very remote um, and with the amount of funding they're receiving they're having a lot of difficulties keeping it afloat we're in the best economic world ever for education and if you're struggling right now what's going to happen when things tighten up and so we're seeing a lot of little schools you said maybe have 20 40 60 kids that are facing some very dire challenges, and I think we have some solutions from this panel um, to help them, but it's going to take some, I think, courageous leadership at the state and national level to really say all kids, all means all. Every child in this state means means everybody, even if they're in a really small, super small town in the
1: middle, uh, way out there in a remote area. Julie, what do you think? from your more of a ground level perspective I should say from a school district level perspective a classroom level perspective is it a fair question to ask and are some of the issues that tim raises fair fair to raise
3: absolutely and i think one of the the most important answer in my head and my heart is that they must stay open. We have to serve all children. And um, and I, I I kind of have this dream, I wish I could go do a documentary and, and really um, record what is happening out there in the field in every single location because there's amazing work happening. And um, we can't, if we close down all these schools or we expect people to just do virtual learning, we're not reaching our kids. And if we close something down and then we have, what high schoolers who have to travel three hours by bus to get to school, and is that going to help them be completers and get through the system? Um, that's gonna be putting barriers in the way when it's really incumbent upon us to remove barriers.
1: Okay, Connie, I wanna to come to you in one moment, but I, I neglected to say something, and that is we want your questions, people, whether you're here in the audience live or watching on YouTube, prepare some questions. Uh, not so uh, not so far from now, I'll be asking, uh, you to share those questions, and uh, so get them ready, and uh, we'll get to as many of them as we possibly can. All right, Connie, to you. Again, this question of rural education in the 21st century, can it survive, should it survive, why should it survive, go.
4: Well, basically, I I would prefer to ask, how does it thrive? You have that freedom to change the question. (laughs) You know, I'm not just interested in seeing rural schools Survive. I want them to thrive, and so I'm constantly working on what can we do for all students to make sure that they can have a living wage and enter the workforce at the end of their education career and um, and have a nice life in California like I have.
1: And we'll come to that. We'll get uh, we'll drill down deeper into those issues in terms of what do you do with a rural education after you've graduated and what should it provide you with. That's right. Let's talk about the global issue we've been wrestling with the last what nearly three years now and that's the pandemic and rural education and rural school districts um raise your hand if you want to speak first how okay you're ready to go ready to go great um how big of a deal has it been particularly for the schools that you're most familiar with here in the central valley
3: so i think it's been phenomenal learning I think that the pandemic created opportunities. And um, and in, initially I was like, this is so amazing because we are going to have the opportunity to really pilot virtual learning and we all have to do it so nobody gets to be left behind. So that was the initial thought um, we struggled. We struggled a lot um, and um, and in small roles, many of the small roles, we um, I, I always liken this to when I talked to the superintendent, um, not the current superintendent, um, one of the previous superintendents of Bakersfield City School District, I said, you know, the beauty of my small district is I'm like a speedboat. I can change direction mm-hmm. and and roll with it, and things can happen, but you're like a yacht. And, and he was like, well, I've never been taught, called a yacht before, <laughs> but it's very incremental change, because there's. Um, Uh, You know a whole hierarchy of decision-makers and things like that. So the beauty of being small and being rural is the Opportunities to really um, shift gears and and be able to serve our kids The other thing that I'd really like to um, bring out that was a piece of the pandemic um, we did learn that Some children are really successful in virtual learning Many are not it is just not the best um, situation for them and many families really struggled to support them but in the small rural district like mine um, I know all of my families I know all of my students I know all of their brothers and sisters I know all of the you know, and you know their hardships because yes and and you know everything that's going on with them because it's um, very small so those are the benefits um, we reached all of our children all of our children had a Chromebook within a week and they were online with us every day and um, and i know other um, people who really struggled other teachers in other um, you know places who it was weeks before they actually connected with their kids and um, so that those are some of the things that came to light from the pandemic it was um it was very um difficult very difficult to staff during the pandemic because you're small and you have 12 teachers and you know when six of them go out with covid or have been exposed yeah then you've got to figure it out but um Connie anyway, and
2: Tim, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think when March 13th hit of 2020, it exposed the uh, the whole digital divide issue, the equity issue. Uh, we uh, instantly they shut down, and then our organization worked with the Department of Ed to figure out how many kids did not have a device, let alone internet, let alone a hotspot, and it was and it was hundreds of thousands of kids, and I think. The entire country saw that rural kids, did, oh my God, they don't even have an iPad to take home. They don't even have internet at home. Some didn't even have a phone in the most rural part, of rural frontier parts. So it really allowed us to show the equity issue there. Our state superintendent did a wonderful job, Tony Thurman, getting as many devices out as quick as possible, but I think everyone was in shock that these teachers did not have the same access to technology as others. With that said, we did a survey of 103 rural schools. They were up and running in 4, uh, 5.7 days. They were door dashing curriculum, which you're not supposed to leave your house as well. Remember, those teachers didn't care. In a small town, you're not gonna shut down for 12 weeks like we saw in most large urban areas. Yeah. Um, they took their time getting back. Um, you can't do that in a small town because it's your family and you live there. So those teachers, even though they had to use door uh, uh, dash curriculum and phone calls, um, were up and running, doing the best
1: they can, until those devices got out there, which took months because of all the back orders. Do you think more effectively than large urban districts and, 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 and school districts in the suburbs?
2: Well, I think everyone struggled. I don't know if it was more effective, um, but it did allow the, the professional, I think the teachers that did not have technology, we were able to get them some really good support so it increased their world. and. We personally delivered some computers out to meadows out there in Imperial County, and the superintendent and the staff got these uh, got these um, uh, notebooks or pads, and they were all crying because those kids didn't have any to take home. And uh, those are the type of things we saw that really did, I think, help. No one did. I think some people did really well as well as they could, but I think it was a very
1: difficult year, 20 and 21. Julie you want to say something very
2: quickly then I want so
3: I know Connie has a lot to say about this but we are in Kern County and I really want to give a shout out honestly because Bakersfield City School District on a dime was absolutely ready and we had local businesses who um, Bakersfield City School District made packets for all grade levels and we had local businesses like the Kern Resource Center and um who volunteered to actually use their paper and their employees and then the support we got from our county office of ed during the entire pandemic um, i would be really remiss if i didn't give them credit for the absolute support that we did get um and i think that that was a huge plus for us Well,
1: applause to them absolutely connie
3: i yeah
4: thank you
1: thank you
3: Uh, and
4: and those
1: listening virtually watching virtually uh, Connie. i know that um uh, computer literacy is very important to you. Yeah. Graduating uh, uh, students that are, are fully ready for 21st century jobs and 21st century lives. Do you think, in a strange way, that the pandemic
4: helped with that? I think it brought a lot of attention and everywhere. And you know, you can see it. The state has six billion dollars that they're going to put into broadband infrastructure. and and make sure that there's open access so that every community can have the kind of broadband that they need. So that's amazing. But I have to give my shout out as well because the school district did a great job of getting uh, Chromebooks out to the places that they knew. However, um, I had this feeling that Native American communities were being left behind because they weren't big. they were not filling out the survey saying what their needs yeah. were. And so uh, Frontier, I have to give my shout out to Frontier Communication and the California Emerging Technology Fund. Uh, they get, came back to me and said, why don't you call some of those communities? And me and a girlfriend made eight phone calls. And we've had 1,450 Native American students that didn't, in, all, in Northern California, that didn't have Chromebooks. Frontier started a program all throughout the state to make sure that they were helping Indigenous students get Chromebooks and sent them out,
1: um, and so they. But to be clear, that was the generosity of one company that could have done that or not done that, right? Well,
4: well, I and I do think that that the nice thing about COVID was that it was all hands on deck. Yes. Okay. It was all hands on deck, and it brought to light some of the issues around technology. And so I'm very hopeful that uh, in the near future, uh, that may be a decade near future, but that we will actually um, solve the digital divide and, and that folks will have it. Now, we spent $40,000 at Cal Poly on hotspots. So yeah. this, this we, you can't sustain that. There were so right. many school districts that had to provide that con- yes. um, connectivity along with the device. Yes. And so uh, it really did bring the to light. I, and it was in this community, I think, that the photo in the Wall Street Journal happened with the student at taco bell trying to study and i think that california will crack that this
1: was the student who went to a taco bell to use the wi-fi and had to sit outside the taco bell because that student didn't have wi-fi available Mm -hmm. at home or any place else he would usually
4: that was salinas Um, tim i want to turn to you
1: you 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 told me something i did not know and that Mm -hmm. is about one out of every four students enrolled in a in a public school district in the United States is, is a rural student. Yep. Is that right? Correct. What is the, whether it's here in California, people listening in Nevada or people listening in Arizona, other places, what is generally in the broadest possible terms, what are the universe of possibilities and services available to that student versus generally speaking, a student who's rolled in the suburban school district or an urban school district. I'm thinking not as many services are available. Am I right? You're
2: you're correct. And I think it's a a lot about access, right? Um, We talked before, access to high quality career tech ed, high access to A through G course curriculums, uh, access to supportive services, mental health services. That's the biggest challenge, is it's just not equitable. Um, And um, and I I don't think, when we talk about 25% of the kids in this country go to a rural school, there's no way we're seeing that conversation at, as, and when we talk about education at our state legislature, at our U.S. Department of Ed. They are not spending one-fourth of their time focusing on those kids. Um, you can see in how they uh, deliver out RFPs for billions of dollars. You can see when they talk about um, how, they, how they actually qualify for funding. It's very uh, metro-centric and um, we're trying to change that. I think the U.S. Department of Ed has to be the lead on that. If one, uh, we're the, if they're the tw- 25% of their kids are not being taken care of, and you don't even have an office of uh, rural ed inside the U.S. Department of Ed, that's a big problem. And I think we need to keep fighting for that and making that happen. Access to the higher quality things and technical things is a big problem. And then, as you mentioned, um, what, what type of jobs are available in a rural community? We want the kids to be doctors, we want them We're to be to engineers. So how can they get access to internships? But That's to be, a tough
1: one. To be very, you know, real ground level uh, talking here. I'm a, rural, I'm a, I'm a, a student in, in a rural school system. It's gonna be harder for me to get a psychologist, psychological help, find a speech therapist, yes. things like that, right? Mm-hmm. right? Julie, you're more familiar, I, I'm just talking <laughs> out of my mouth, but you, you, but you know this, so in real-world examples of this, is that right? Like in school districts you've been involved in.
3: It's absolutely right, and I will tell you what it requires to make it happen. So a perfect example, I could never have a psych at my school because I can't afford a psych. And so in order to actually make that happen, a psycholo- school psychologist, um, to actually make that happen for my students, um, I hired one. And then I called three other districts and said, OK, I can afford 40% of her because I have this grant funding. Can you buy 20%? And they each bought 20% of her. So now all four of us have a school psychologist who can serve our kids. But there's no way we can have one by ourselves.
1: You kind of jury rigged that together.
3: Yes, we absolutely had to collaborate. And um, create a consortium and create a memorandum of understanding, and all be willing to trust each other and work together, and have an employee who's willing to do that, so she can serve all of us.
1: Connie, you agree from your I, experiences humble? I would agree. It
3: takes some unique, unique thinking
4: outside of the box in order to try to provide services for students, um, and, and yeah, and I think that you know we are all talking about the fact that. We, we're, we need to elevate these challenges. Yeah. Uh, we're, not trying, we're not trying to take money away from urban or, or any of that. We're just trying to elevate our challenges and make sure that there's some focus on helping us uh, solve some of them. So I think that that's where we're, we're focused.
1: Do you, and cards on the table here. What, I've done my share of educate. I'm not an education reporter by any means, but I've done my share of ed- education stories. And my default is, I think, big urban school districts and their challenges and opportunities. I think suburban school districts to a degree, Tim, how much of this, how much do you think rural school districts, small town school districts have to wrestle with that kind of cultural bias or that lack of attention from people in my business, media business, elected officials, maybe people in the educational establishment. Is that just a huge issue?
2: Yeah. I think a transition from decisions made in DC and Sacramento, um, are pretty shocking to rural communities. It doesn't reflect their cultures a lot of the times, and uh, so we're always we're always dealing with that, you know. Uh, and I think you mentioned a really good point. I think the media too. I think the media doesn't spend 25% of their time covering rural schools. No, I'm yeah. very very proud of EdSource, though. I think EdSource really done a good job providing more balance and getting to understand our schools. Um, but that they'll will be decisions made within Sacramento and they are so far from a community out in Frontier, Modoc, Baker, California, Trona, and we have to help filter that to figure out how we can get these type of decisions that are made that serve primarily kids of color and in the city and make it work within our,
1: our systems. So I, I imagine you feel you're explaining things to legislators that you think they should already know.
2: Well, I think one of our big challenge and our goal, I was up in Siskiyou County last, uh, this week and we are going to take the decision makers on a bus tour and show them these little communities because I don't think it's their fault if you grew up in LA and you're a legislator in LA and you got big power we, ha- we got to take in the communities because they're wonderful communities and they will fall in love with them um, and I think it's a combination of media helping us with that but we have a responsibility to bring it to them because they have, are busy um, and the big decision-makers are not, uh, they're pretty much, um, dem- they're Democrats, and these are Republican areas. And um, they have not lived in these worlds. And uh, as a person who grew up in the Bay Area, I've learned so much the last five years about rural communities. It's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing.
1: Julie, I know you have something to say.
3: I just have a little example. Um, when I first got to Maple, which was, um, eight years and three months ago. And um, the first thing I noticed was that the, that the facilities were, it had been in a drought and then December came and the rains came. And um, and I was like, this is not okay. This is not, hmm. our kids can't go to school where water's coming through the walls. Um, the point being is that I had to advocate at the state for years. I had every legislator in my area come and visit my district. It required bipartisan support um, letters to go to the Office of Public School Construction to make that work happen, because the people making the rules, and they're all making them for the right reasons. I believe that they really do believe that they're doing the right thing, but they don't actually see what that looks like or what the challenges are to actually implement those rules in the field. You know, what it actually looks like when you, everybody wants accountability, but every time when there's, you know, eight new funding sources and everyone comes with a plan and you're the only administrator or one of two at a small district and suddenly you're, you're not serving kids, you're writing plans and that's not good for anybody. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wouldn't any official though in any school system in the country say the same thing or no?
3: I would hope not, because many of them, I have a friend who her sole job is to write the LCAP, and, and truly that's about 5% of my job as a small school district 1%, superintendent. 1%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You
2: know.
1: Connie, uh, both kind of as a resident of California, somebody who's been in politics, somebody who's in higher education right now, do you think that um, rural school districts um, are often too quiet, are often too quiet, and just basically, you know, we heard the example, you... You, you, with, with, with a psychologist, you, made a, you found a way to make it work and to hire someone temporarily. Do you think that is too often the case where we, we, we think, well, rural school districts, they'll, they'll take care of it somehow. We'll focus on L.A., San Diego, Oakland. Do you think that's too often the case?
4: Well, Sacramento, folks in Sacramento don't come out to rural, and rural doesn't go to Sacramento enough. And so, uh, that, you know, when I have uh, school superintendents who all of a sudden say, oh my gosh, I went down to Sacramento and I, I learned I need to do that more. Uh, that's you know part of the challenge, is they We aren't as organized and as vocal, and it's not a uh, one-hour plane ride right. <laughs> to get right. to get there. It's you know oftentimes a few hops or a drive, uh, you know, a whole day drive or something. So uh, so yeah, I do think a lot. There's a lot of us who are trying to figure out how to make do with what we have. Um, And uh, you know, getting back to what Tim had to say about A to G, um, A to G is so important because it's how you get into college or university. Um, it's the encur- simply, you, please. Sim- <laughs> simply put, Tim helps. It's you the out.
2: courses that help you get into the university. Got it. Right. They're the high-end, yeah. high-end, high-rigor ones. Yeah.
1: AP things yeah. like
4: that. IB. It's math, science, yeah. Okay, got language. Got okay. Yeah. 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 Want to bring everybody aboard with us? So yes. Yeah, sorry, I, we want to make this accessible. No so words. Go ahead. So imagine if you need, um, if you need a, two years of Spanish in order to get into a university, and you are uh, 40 students, you don't have a lot of teachers that can potentially teach a language. And so a lot of our rural communities, one of the things that we struggle with is making sure that those students can get that uh, that education level that can get them into our university. Um, I'm very lucky that uh, my boss um, tells me that part of my job is to create those pathway programs and try to help those small schools um, by paying for teachers who can go in there and teach. And maybe you're teaching a Spanish class at this high school and then you're driving to that high school um, awesome. in order to make it happen. So, um, but yeah, back to your question, we need to spend more time in Sacramento, having them understand the challenges. Um, you need to be and, louder. Uh, we need to be no. louder and no. we need to be more inviting of Sacramento folks to come, get, rent the bus and get them up.
3: One of the it. things they said to me when I went there is, um, we don't see school people here. And I was like, what on earth? And I actually put 42,000 miles a year. You're being the corridors
4: of
1: power in Sacramento. <laughs>
3: yeah, I put 42,000 miles a year on my car three years in a row,
1: yeah. um,
3: advocating to get funding for facilities. <laughs> so, um, and, and that's what it takes.
1: I'm curious, this isn't, Just uh, sad. this isn't a round-robin question, but, but Tim, you might have the answer, or any one of you might. Uh, how many rural sc- like high schools generally have like AP classes, like a full assortment? Is that?
2: Oh, is I, that- you know, I think we're, we, we have to do, a. I, I think that's where technology is going to help us, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not great. in. It's in not rural. great. It's, it's way below the national average. Which
1: is really important, right? Because yeah. AP classes used to be a very special thing, but now they're kind of the norm.
2: Yeah. So
4: for a lot of students if well, they're dual enrollment. Is well, right? here, I was going to say yeah, that please, to me please, the, right. to me the solution we said we were coming with solutions yeah. is to encourage more dual enrollment. Dual enrollment. So get High school students to be dual enrolled in the community colleges in their communities, so that they can actually be taking those college prep classes at college and getting credit for them, so they'll be can graduate sooner oh. and be ahead. Oh,
1: that's interesting. So, seeing ed- the power of community colleges. Exactly.
3: for- Exactly. And we have those here in um, both at Wasco. Well, Kern High School District is the um, the high school district. Uh, they have 19 comprehensive high schools in um, the city of Bakersfield and well, not just in the city of Bakersfield, but Kern County, and then we have Wasco and um, Taft, which are individual, and Tehachapi, and all of them have some type of dual enrollment program going on. They have partnerships.
4: Wouldn't it be fabulous if every high school student graduated with some units at a community college? Sure. Wouldn't that be fabulous if they all had a head start or some time they spent in a trade? Yeah, <laughs> actually, that's what I was going Getting to do something that they getting, loved. Getting to do something that they loved and that taught them about future job opportunities. Yeah. And that's what, I think that's I like actually that. easier to do in rural yeah.
2: Yeah. than it is to do in urban. So I wanna go back, cause you bring up a good point. Our voice needs to be amplified. And I think we need to follow the, the roadmap or the blueprint of the urban schools. They've done a very good job working with advocacy groups, equity groups to tell their story and what the children are up against we don't do that and we don't litigate. So let's, let me bring up a good example. During the COVID era, I, re- I woke up one day in the middle of December and there was an article in EdSource that said this, uh, this law firm out of LA, the big one, they're the ones who, who sued for the Williams, make sure every kid had a textbook, were suing on behalf of an eight-year-old girl in Oakland because her learning loss didn't have great access to technology, et cetera. So being Irish, I got a little fired up and I actually called the law firm and I said, what, what, why are you representing her? Salesforce just gave Oakland $10 million for more devices. They already have one-to-one. Now they're going two-to-one. What about the worlds? And the law firm didn't know who the heck we were. So they interviewed 12 of our superintendents and put some of them inside there. They were in shock about we had no clue as the best one of the biggest law firms in LA what was going on in these schools with lack of um, access to technology, technology, et cetera? So, again, I think we, we kind of forced that issue from Sacramento through me, but I think we need to do a better job of, of being a little bit more aggressive, have a better plan, and work with the equity groups to tell our story and apply to the Native students,
1: frontier and rural. Yeah. And Absolutely. I think when people think of aggressive tactics in urban school districts, they think of teachers unions. Playing the political game very well. Sure. Um, Is that an example of that, or no?
2: No, I'm talking about the groups that focus on the kids. I mean, there's obviously CTA and is a big is the biggest uh, power player in the state, and they do great work for their members. But I'm talking about the equity groups like the ACLU and Ed Trust West and all these wonderful groups that are fighting for the kids. And I think we need to get them out. We need to get a rural group like that, uh, get them get ACLU focused on what's going on, so they look at the funding and the uh, inequities
1: out there. Is there a provocative question? I, I'm sure even people who just uh, uh, follow educational issues passingly have perhaps heard of the, the, the proposal to shut down schools in Oakland, shut down schools in Inglewood because of changing population trends, right? We just right. have fewer kids of school age that are coming into the system. Yeah. Uh, very painful for communities when this is talked about. We still have, you know, schools are such linchpins of neighborhood identity, community identity. But if that's being considered in an urban context, should it be considered in a rural one? Are, are there rural school districts and schools that exist that necess- that, that shouldn't really? <laughs> well, Anyone have anything to say about that?
4: Well, uh, what I will say is that in our community, we've had a lot of school closures and a lot of school okay. consolidation. Sorry for and not knowing that. one of the... Big issues is what happens to those schools after they close, and uh, we've had some success turning them into community centers, uh, turning them into family resource centers, turning them into bilingual education uh, centers, um, and, and and so that's one of the the things. So they still add to the value and the in in that community. Um, we have in our community Native American uh, who are buying some of those schools and then turning them into centers uh, to help indigenous folks. So, so, so there are consolidations happening. We're not, we're not here to Which are necessary in
1: your, in your
4: mind? Because of, popula- because of the population change. Uh, we're, we're, not every school is going to stay open, but what we're okay. trying to do is avoid having a student on the bus for three hours yeah. a day. Yeah. Right. Um, So that's where where we have a situation where if you can't learn, (laughs) um, we have to try to keep that school open. So we have to be smart about how we consolidate schools and what we do with those those schools, so they're still a benefit to the community when they're gone.
1: Any other thoughts on that? I mean, is that necessary? Maybe in some cases to.
3: I, I, I struggle with that because I, I feel like there's the, I mean, I don't struggle with being repurposed for phenomenal opportunities. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I struggle with people being willing to give up. Because um, because the school is struggling or because they haven't been entirely successful because those kids are dependent on you Those families are dependent on you Um, That community might be dependent on you Um, For example, um, I did work in Tehachapi for a short time. The school district there is one of the largest employers um, in in Tehachapi and And it is rural, but but it does, even though it's a larger district, definitely much larger than um, the district I had, it's more like four or 5,000. But if you had a really high need special ed student, for example, and you couldn't serve them, you had to put them on the bus at 5 a.m. to get them down to Bakersfield, and then they'd get back to Tehachapi at 5 p.m. So you've got a really high need special ed student who has essentially gone from home 12 hours. So is that the best? No. No. So, no, absolutely I, no. Uh, no. Tim, I'm going to
1: come to you in a moment. Just a reminder, we're taking questions. If you have any other questions, we'll be coming to them, we hope, in the next few minutes or so. Um, so, Tim, any, any two cents from you about consolidating rural schools, closing some schools down? Maybe is there anything to be said to virtu- moving to a virtual environment instead of going to a physical place? Your thoughts, sir?
2: Well, I, you know, there was a, a local school here closed here in Kern County, was, you know, um, and there's some talk about it, possibly another one, it happens. Usually, it usually comes down to two things: fiscal solvency and are there enough kids to run the school? Although the state losses Which is le- for less, than, less than six. You got to close it. Having closed a town, a school in a rural community up in Butte, you're closing the town.
4: That's
2: right. So, uh, you know, I think when we close schools in big areas, and I've done that in Sac, we've had consolidations or, uh, or mostly in, uh, unifications of districts and stuff. Um, it's painful. It, you're taking away part of the soul of the community. Sure. Right, and they and those children that we've had to close it was up in uh, Feather Falls in Butte County. The, the eight to twelve kids had to now take another about an hour plus bus ride, maybe hour and ten minutes, uh, and that added to the stress there. But you really have to deal with the emotions around that. They come out of the woodworks. People lived in this town. The grandparents went there, and uh, it's it's really tough. But um, at some point, you have to look at what's best for the kids. Is, is it good to have a school with nine kids where you have K eight school? and the teacher's trying to do 12 subjects. Um, but it's a very painful thing. I feel for bad for the people in Oakland and England. I know what they're going through. Um, but in a rural, you're really pulling the whole town out, out apart.
1: Yeah, it's a, it
2: is. And don't
4: get us started on busing, because that's a whole other, <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other show. That's a whole other. And
1: show. busing in a in a rural context.
4: Uh, yes, busing and, and 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 the politics around busing. It, <laughs> yeah. Believe me, that's okay, a whole other show. Remember, a Y'all whole
1: other show. Yeah, yes, yeah. Connie, busing.
4: Connie, though, I, I do want to come to you, and that is,
1: um, uh, tell me if I'm wrong about this. I think we have a cultural bias at times against rural education, mm-hmm. where we think. You know we've seen the movies and the tv shows where it's all about get the education you can here kid and get out of this place and and leave and go you're going to find opportunities in the big city other places number one do you think that is a problem and number two if that's a bias culturally yes and number two i think you think it's a problem but uh you tell me and then number two is it how big of a is it a challenge increasingly to make sure that the opportunities, the workforce opportunities, the employment opportunities are there in place in the communities where these where these students are graduating so they stay there yeah. and they make really great lives for themselves there and not necessarily in Denver or LA or Chicago or San Diego.
4: I do I think that there is it, it's interesting climate change is going to change this thinking. But I think that there there were decades where it was like Uh, it's inevitable people are gonna move to urban environments and uh, only a few people are gonna live in rural environments. And I think that the world's turning on that. However, I am, I was born in East Orange, New Jersey and moved to San Jose, California, and I chose to live in rural communities <laughs> and I've chose to thrive there. Um, and I believe that we need workforce. Um, and, you know, you know I, I work at Cal Poly Humboldt. The legislature and the governor put a historic investment into creating a polytech in Northern California. And they did that. Because they wanted to see a rural community um, in Northern California be able to help create the blue-green economy and the workforce that's needed for that region.
1: So we're talking about wind farms? We are
4: talking about alternative energy. We are talking about a new way of looking at housing. We're talking about... Uh, climate change, we're talking about broadband, we're talking about all sorts of technology jobs. And so they, a historic investment in, in, our, in our university um, to anchor and educate people so that they can stay and be part of the workforce in Northern California. And so um, I think there are two ways we could look at the world, right? We, as a university, we could go to where their students are and say come live for four years and then go home or we can say there's a there's a career and a life for you here and i think that universities are starting to look and california needs to educate the workforce you know in my lifetime in my 20 years california's population has grown by what 10 20 million since i was 18 that's going to change we're not gonna be able to just import um, the workforce that we need. We need to look at our existing children and tell them they have a career and a living wage here. And we need to do a better job of making sure that they understand the entire workforce, not just there's doctors and nurses, but there's radiology techs and there's Mm -hmm. accountants and everything in healthcare. Um, And so um, I think that that's one, uh, you know, that California, 70 years ago created the master plan, mm-hmm. and I think yeah. that we need to relook at that master plan to make sure that the education master plan is educating our students to provide the jobs we need in order to be California and thrive in Good California.
1: Idea. Agreement, disagreement with any part of that? from the
2: 70 years ago, a long time. I think we made some adjustments, but I think uh, a, a master plan of today would be uh, uh, well worth look, having.
1: Yeah. Can I? You know, we have the title of this particular uh, can rural of this particular event can rural education survive the 21st century? I think we've we've all made the case that yes, it will survive. Oh, yeah. And, and all the reasons why. Um, can we just talk about the joys of of, of rural education and small town education? I mean. Uh, what are the things that just rock about it that you don't necessarily find in 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 other environments suburban and urban
3: we know our kids we know every student
1: student. by by first name (laughs) unfortunately for the students no uh, 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 julie do you have anything to to say about that um
3: definitely that's part of it we know all of them we know their brothers and sisters we know when their mom's going to have a new baby we know when you know their brother got his driver's license we know when their sister got their ears pierced we know everything and we've seen generations of families go through our schools. Um, and And here in Kern County in the school that I worked at, it's in the middle of almond orchards, surrounded by almond orchards in um, rural community between Shafter and Wasco. Um, many of the people there have lived there for generations. but I'll tell you the things that are really exciting that you would might think um, a small rural district especially as small as ours wouldn't provide um, we have project lead the way which is um, project lead the way and robotics all the way from eighth grade down to um, to transitional kindergarten
1: that's a robotics
3: program yes, yes. Um, and we work in collaboration with the high school district to help our students be prepared to go into the high school district um, we most recently have created electives, so our students have the ability to do agriculture they have art history they have film um, history they have um, music appreciation and they have um, conditioning. And so we've recently added that to our our small, um, and and just made it happen by finding out what our teachers wanted to Mm -hmm. teach and giving them a freedom to do that once they taught all the things that they were required to do. We do have, which is just amazing, they um, play in a um, sports league. And um, because of the amazing relationship we've built with our partnering districts, we've brought four other schools into our sports league this year because they wanted to play with us. And there's just a lot of really good work going on. We've also been working with neighboring school districts to to create a consortium for a community school. Um, So we received a full service community school grant and created a consortium and created a children's cabinet and worked with local legislators. I mean, really, really good work that's going on that is happening by working together, trusting each other and being focused on what's best for kids, not what's best for Tim or Connie or Julie, but really what's best for kids.
1: Anyone else about the the advantages of small town education? Well,
2: yeah, first of all, I think the school is the town. Right, so you're part of this incredible culture where everyone is looking at the kids um, in, in a small rural town. Uh, the kids play in dirt, they play on trees, there's sometimes a bear on campus, it's fresh air, they could be out in the desert and you know I love Baker. The Baker had, I, I, know, I, I kid you not, they just finally got a plastic playground. They had steel metal out in Baker, which the you know, average temperature is 100. That's how yeah. the kids loved it. A little, little burn, no big deal. Um, but you have smaller class size, um, and, and again, the board members know the kids' names, right every kid name. Um, from the board members on down everybody 's there so it 's a really loving, supportive, safe environment um, and i 'd like to give you just one example. Trona had an earthquake a couple years ago, and the, the high school crumbled, and so they had to move to the or elementary school I was
1: there, by the way. I was there
2: after the real oh, wow. yeah. yeah. and the, the, the kids just moved up to an elementary school. They had no water for the football team. That had bust some water in. I went to the opening game, the Friday night football game, because there's nothing like a Friday night football game in a small town. And um, so the whole town's there. The rival high school brought their marching band because Trona didn't have enough kids for one. And then uh, the, the coach goes, you, you can't believe what we do. Well, their, their name's the Sandman. So the little guy with the little, you know, stuff around the potato sack around him and the coach goes, you won't believe what happened. Well, as the sun's going down, I'm on this beautiful environment. Here comes the Sandman and the football team, and they played Enter the Sandman by Metallica. And I was crying and the kids took the American flag around and I thought, "Wow, well, these guys, this lot, they still don't have their high school. They're still at the school. What a, that, that to me is, really represents what it's like to be in a rural town and everyone goes to those games. It's a big deal, have great barbecues. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I think. You know, the kids really get immersed with the, the community, and it's a beautiful thing.
1: That school is community. Community is school. Absolutely, they're so intertwined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, imagine you see that in, in I, Bolton.
4: Yeah, and I think that you know you can't hide either. If we need, <laughs> if we need to get in touch with that's anyone true. at the school, uh, you go to the grocery store. <laughs> you know, you can figure Absolutely that out. True. So I, I, I think. Well, all of us have wonderful stories of of, of how we can quickly make change. Um, and uh, I think that that's the beauty of being able to work at a rural school.
1: Really Connie, you, you're, you're from a part of California where, uh, like in so many places, property prices have increased in recent years. It used to be people used to go there because it was more affordable. Yes. That's certainly not the case anymore. That's not the case the in rural. California. I'm wondering what challenges, and that's played out in other places in California, other places Even in the rural year. county, yeah. because people have left the cities during the pandemic. You know, there are knowledge workers working uh, over the internet uh, in rural places. How has that affected the lives of teachers and the pocketbooks of teachers?
4: Uh, it's very, very, very difficult on a teacher's salary or anyone who works in a school district salary to buy a house in California now. About 25% of the houses uh, in my region uh, were bought with cash during the pandemic. Uh, so folks were coming from the Bay Area and just nabbing houses, and there weren't very many on the market. We are at a historic low for, a, for in our housing market. And ca- as you know, Californians are not really pro-growth, most people uh, want to stop change the day they move into a small town. Yeah. Um, and so one of, that's been one of the struggles is, um, and we're doing a lot to try to invest in creating workforce housing uh, so that we can try to keep instructors and try to keep teachers and, uh, and, and building. Now affordable housing, affordable housing is you make $80,000. Well, yeah. Uh, And you have a family of four in California. And I think that that's what folks don't understand about the conversation. Like, We're trying Uh to build housing for your firefighters and your teachers and others so that they can stay and live in the community.
1: You first moved there in the 80s, I believe. I
4: bought my house for $126,000.
1: So for teachers, I imagine kind of the tacit deal in that era would have been, well, you're not going to get maybe as much pay as you would in urban school districts, but you're going to live a a really good life on on a lot less money here and and afford that home in in a way that you can't now. I'm stating the obvious. Well,
4: like I said, I bought a house uh, for $126,000. Are we doing that for the ne- uh, salaries haven't increased enough? <laughs> right, you could probably sell your house for, for $700,000. Next- exactly, <laughs> and so the you know the American dream is slipping from people in education, and I think that we have to address that as Californians.
1: Yeah. Ground level too. Anything that rural educators, resources and money, of course. Anything else they need along with that, or.
3: Um, Well, I just I think that there's um, it's that's a really broad question and I think that the um, it's really interesting because one of the things that we always think, you know, um, give them more money, they will come or increase the the pay. There is just a a complete inequity in um, how education resources are allocated anyway, um, because every source uses the exact same funding formula or very similar to the same funding formula. So some schools continue to get more and more and more. And like Connie said previously, we want every child to have a world-class education. We would never want any child to get something taken away from them but we would really love to see some that are very much less funded at least get something. <laughs> um, so it's a challenge. It's a challenge out there and it is related to the numbers and related to the demographics. Well, yeah, I mean, well we Tim, look-
2: from your 30,000 foot level. Well, again, I think the governor just signed some legislation to make it easier to, they're not gonna, he, he cut a lot of the bureaucracy out of putting housing in for teachers. That's right. And again, let's follow the footprint of the large, right? South San Francisco just built some housing for teachers. Santa Clara has done it. San Francisco's in the process. Up in, up in Siskiyou, just a couple days ago, they lost another 92 homes in the fire and weed. So now you've got the problem with not only uh, people losing their houses, how do you rebuild? And we absolutely need to look at the models that we've seen in some of these urbans and build housing for teachers in small rural communities. And again, it, it may be center of the county and then it can go, but that absolutely has to happen. Super proud of uh, uh, Superintendent Derek Cooper up in Happy Camp. He lost a third of the town up there by the Klamath River. He just dropped some portable, uh, some mobile homes in the back of his campus, so him and his teachers have a place to live, and it's right on campus. It's not the most glamorous, but uh, it's a place for them to live so they can go teach at the school there. So I think we need to be creative. Also, think we need to just kind of follow the footprint of. I love the fact people are building housing in the Bay Area and LA for teachers,
1: but let's do it out in the rural communities that need it. And what about the beyond the universe of? the schools and the school districts themselves and the wider community, family life in rural schools. Do any of you have anything to say about that in improving or enhancing that aspect of education that happens beyond the classroom?
3: Where do we start? Not a trick oh, question. Oh, <laughs> I know. I think for so many of us, I mean, we've really had a struggle. This, the um, we have a kind of a collaborative Westside Small School Districts collaborative around here, and we work really closely with other districts. And we really struggled this year because everybody wanted to, not everybody, but many people wanted to change the sports um, season to be after school because um, it was taking some instructional time. But, but the sports day in the middle of the um, day where all of the families are coming and everybody's coming together and they've done this for generations, um, you know, that's all part of what they do. That's all part of what their memories are and, and everything. We have a barbecue out at Maple, I have 300 students. We serve um, between 32 and 3500 meals um, at a barbecue put on by the parent club every year. <laughs> that's Sounds great. Good. Yeah.
1: I promise to get to questions. I believe we have questions lined up and people who are ready to relay them to our guests. Please.
0: Yes, um, so yeah, so thank you to our panelists for such an insightful conversation. And we're gonna continue this conversation with Q&As. And so if any of our in-person audience has questions, please line up over here on this stage. In the meantime, I will um, ask some questions from our audience. And so our first question is, so this person represents an arts organization under construction in Los Angeles, Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. How can urban arts or nonprofits best work with and serve rural school communities?
2: Well, our arts is my one, my one of my top three initiatives. Uh, I think the, uh, we have to work with the urban to come out to the rural. Uh, we've seen this model before. Uh, At Butte County, way up north, we partner with Orange County to help with what's called the multi-tiered system of support. We use their resources to come out. Um, I have a great story to answer that one for that guest. Uh, Lassen High School has a new drumming band, Mm -hmm. all-white drumming band. It's been a lifesaver for the kids that are in that. They love it. And the superintendent called me and said, Tim, you mentioned a charter school that has a drumming program. It's Margaret Fortune's charter. So the uh, African-American kids are going to go up to Lassen, and partner with the okay. drumming team that's the type of thing we need to bring some more urban art and dance and theater in um, when the campfire hit us the beautiful people of the bay area in la had some of our students that were in drama and art go to theater down in the bay and down in la and the choir sang it. i just think it's our responsibility as artists to bring it together and let the kids in the urban areas, come on out, show us what you got going on. Our So kids will eat rural it
1: school districts are ready for that conversation. They would love urban assistance.
3: When we've done things like partner with uh, um, the local high school to put on a play, So we partnered with them. Their theater group actually did um, all of the set design and all of the coaching of Mm -hmm. our students, and our students went went there and um, put on a play right before we got shut down. Um, And then we also have music teacher. We've always had a music teacher. Um, And then, like I said, we have art appreciation. I mean, we work hard to have all of those things. It might not be to the same um, degree, but we really work to
4: put
1: all right. all urban art I, institutions. The need is there, okay. and they're, well, they're ready to talk. And,
4: and honestly, I think we can. We have stuff to offer too. So oh I, yeah, I both ways. That both ways. Yes, I know. In our, you know, we have a rich art history mm-hmm. and culture up mm-hmm. in our rural communities yes. too, and I think we'd love to share it with urban. So I would say it's more of an exchange. Yes, so of course. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. the, the we'll person part,
2: the, the person who had said that question, email me. I'd love to have L.A. come up to,
4: <laughs> I bet you, you know, Humble. Let's bring L.A. Notice. up to Humble.
1: Next question, I want to make sure we, we get to, I'm, I'm late coming to them, so my okay. apologies.
3: Thank you very much. Um, I'm Michaela. If online learning wasn't for every student during COVID, what research has been done about alternatives? You know, in Australia, they have School of the Radio to contact kids working on farms. Are you collaborating internationally or researching internationally?
2: Oh. Really? <laughs> I
4: I I would say um, it's a great uh, this is a great question, and um, we in our in our region we were lucky enough to have some folks from New Zealand. Um, who came? Who came out and uh, talked to uh, the California Endowment helped bring them out to uh, talk about some of the unique stuff that they were doing in New Zealand. Um, so in Delmar County, uh, they took advantage of that, and a little bit in Humboldt County as well. But I do think you know, we, there's a lot we can learn from uh, yep. from um, other yep. cultures and in other states. Um, co- you know, COVID was a hard, hard time to like. Yeah. do that, but as we open up again on our virtual lives end, uh, I mean, or begin again, um, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's a good qu- point. Yeah, it's a good yeah.
1: point. Okay, next question. Do we have one ready ready oh. to go?
4: You know, I, I should say, oh. as a university, we are looking very carefully at that. Um, we, we uh, In broadband technology, we have... Uh,
1: at Cal Poly Humboldt. At
4: Cal Poly Humboldt, we are... Um, working with uh, some corporations on building uh, some subsea cables that are going to Singapore. And so we are actually talking to Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin and Alexander Humboldt knew each other. And so thinking, oh, we can do some sister universities overseas and stuff. So so we are starting to look out and see, hey, there's a, especially in Indonesia and other areas, okay. California needs to spend more time in the Pacific Rim.
2: Yeah, but I think, just one quick, on the online, it was a, it hit us really quick. We don't have time to prepare. No child should graduate from California without taking an online course. You're going to, any job you go into or any college is going to require you something online, and we can't send kids off who have never done that experience because it's a setup for failure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, next question, and uh, I think we're going to wrap it up very soon, So, but I'm going to make yeah. sure we get to this yeah. next one. Yeah,
0: so this final question is from our online audience. And so the question is, when the pandemic erupted in March 2020, how were children impacted in terms of gaining access to food and nutrition?
4: Oh, I, I was going to tell a wonderful story about in our region the buses, uh, the food, the kitchens were still open at the schools, and folks cooked. And put the food on the buses, and then the buses still kept their routes, and childrens and family were able to come to the bus and get food access. Yes. And so we had food delivery uh, and bus service um, as a unique opportunity to k- yeah. make sure that yeah. all the students got nutrition at home. So that
3: yes. was that
4: was one of the things of the pandemic that people had a lot, a lot of good feelings for. Yeah. Any other couple of brief
1: responses to that?
3: Well, I would say too, because I mean, in my very small um, rural community, and we're pretty, um, you know, seven or eight miles from either town, our children come from Shafter or Wasco. So, what ultimately ended up happening was a phenomenal partnership, but um, of course, it was more convenient for them to get fed in Shafter and Wasco, and because the system allowed them to do that then our children were really fed near their home. So they were all able to go and get food every day near their home. That's right. Instead of yeah. driving all the way yeah. to get... Tim,
2: final point? Yeah, educators are they are so enabling, so heroic. Uh, we saw some food deliveries that were unbelievable, whether it was a drive up or drive out. Um, and job descriptions went out the door. So it yeah. didn't matter if you were a teacher, food service, custodian. Food was the big thing on March 20th, or March 13th. And schools got real creative and you know, didn't follow all the rules because they had to figure out where to feed people.
1: But that's what it took during an international pandemic. I certainly saw a lot of that in, in a LA context and all kinds of campuses. All right. I think we are wrapping up. I'm not quite seeing my cues, but I think we're about there time wise. I want to thank you all. It was such oh, a pleasure to talk to you so beforehand good. and particularly here on stage. A lot of it was completely new information to me. So a real eye opener. Thank you. I hope the viewing audience felt the same thing. I want to Again, thank you. I want to invite the audience to go to ZocaloPublicSquare.org. We'll, we should have this posted by tomorrow, but there's all kinds of other good stuff. Zocalo is an amazing organization, such an eclectic array of, uh, of topics. You'll, you'll see a lot there. You'll learn a lot you didn't know, so go to ZocaloPublicSquare.org. I want to thank also the organizers uh, at Zocalo for putting this all together. <laughs> Applause to you. Uh, please do- A couple of other housekeeping things. Please please do subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter and podcast for more great conversations and follow Zocalo on social media. I assume that's all the social media, your your Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Um, Everyone who's here physically, please stay for a reception we're having. You can continue the conversation there. If I didn't get to questions that you feel were important to ask, well, now's your opportunity to ask them again. Thank you so much. Applause to all of you. you. Thank you for joining us. You're great. It was a great conversation. Thank you all. Good moderator.
3: Thanks. Thank you for having (laughs) me.